1: Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org
2: pets. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common— No matter where we listen from, a curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening.
3: Welcome to Meant to Be Eaten. I am your host, Andrea Wien, and joining me in the studio today are Josh Grinker, chef and co-owner of the Williamsburg restaurant Kings County Imperial and Stone Park Cafe in Park Slope, and Tracy Jane Young, chef and Josh's business partner. Welcome to the show.
4: Hi, Andrea. Great to be back in the studio.
3: So, Josh, you started cooking in Chinese restaurants in the late 90s, early 2000s, which is way before this conversation that we're having about cultural appropriation was started. Looking at it now, how and why do you think that discussion about what you're doing has shifted since the beginning?
5: I think people have just become much more aware of, you know, the social, political, and economic um, issues about food and about um, culture and how those things intermingle. I got into it simply because it excited me. And it was, there was no, there was no question about, okay, well, I was a Western trained chef and, you know, I was out of culinary school and I was just blown away by the flavors and the interesting ingredients that were, that I was exposed to. And I just followed my, you know, my heart and my palate down that road, but there was never any discussion about... You know, was I doing anything untoward or wrong or crossing any kind of cultural lines? To me, it was just a whole new set of ingredients and a whole new set of flavor profiles that made me really excited.
3: When you think about it now, when did those conversations really start coming up and how did you respond in the beginning to that?
5: Well, I mean, luckily, you know, I have, a, you know, I, we're in some ways at the forefront of the issues about cultural appropriation because... We're Westerners and we're really excited about all kinds of ethnic food. On the other hand, um, I think because we really put our heart and soul into it and our, don't try to, and don't marginalize the food or fetishize the food or in any way, you know, try to make it something that, that it's not and just kind of incorporate it into our repertoire, I haven't really had to deal with it on that level.
3: You have received quite a bit of flack for being a white guy cooking Chinese food, and as we've seen throughout the show, the question of whether it's right to cook Chinese food is kind of the wrong question to be asking, right? So cultural mixing is going to happen, multiculturalism, which we were talking about before we came on air. There's no one right or wrong person to cook certain dishes, and the discussion is certainly far more nuanced like that. So how do you think about what you're doing now at the restaurant?
5: Well, I I mean, arguably, Chinese food is the greatest cuisine in the world. It's, you know, and I I say that not just because as a lover of Chinese food, because I personally subjectively think it's the greatest food in the world. There are objective benchmarks that you could argue make it the greatest cuisine in the world. So to me, it's... Such
3: as? I'm curious.
5: Such as it's got more recipes than any other country in the world. It's got more variety and regionality. Once you start really delving into Chinese cuisine and go to China and go to different regions of China, you quickly realize that it's like a dozen different completely, you know, separate cuisines all making up this thing that's known as chinese cuisine. so that's one of the things that's super exciting to me and you know, we've i've never felt like i needed to like hem myself into my own cultural heritage. i've always just done what any creative person would do and that's just you know what speaks to you and what moves you try to you know, pay homage to that and try to be faithful to that.
3: I think it's interesting that you mention all the different regional cuisines and things because here in the US we have a very one sided view of what Chinese food is and it's very Chinese American food. And I actually read a statistic while we were while I was prepping for the show that there are three times as many Chinese restaurants in the US than McDonald's franchises, which wow. is a pretty incredible number. And I would argue that the majority of them are serving kind of these same one note dishes that are maybe not even inherently Chinese at all. So how have you...
5: American Chinese food is a thing. Like, it's it's a thing that's actually now being exported back to China. So you you can find in, you know, different big cities in China, American Chinese restaurants. The Chinese brought the food to, uh, to our shores in the 19th century with the gold rush and really through an amalgam. And this is, you know, this is an interesting part of cultural appropriation. The Chinese were cooking for Chinese food for an American palate. And that's kind of how the Chinese American food movement began. Um, And it, but now it's its own separate cuisine. It's like you said, like you can trace some of the Chinese American dishes back to certain regional things in China, but basically They've taken on a totally character, totally of their own making, and whether that's American or Chinese or Chinese American, it's hard to say. It's kind of like Italian American food. That's something that you don't you, you you know you 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 find only. Well, you find it throughout the world, but you you don't necessarily find it faithfully in Italy.
3: Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up Italian cooking because. If an American chef is trained by an Italian chef, let's say here in New York, that's respected and generally viewed as okay, and we don't have these same questions of, is it cultural appropriation? Is it multiculturalism? It's just, it just is. So... When you think about those standards of whose food it's okay to cook, how are those created in your mind?
5: Well, I think, you know, the discussion is, you're you're, you're right, like, we, you know, we have heard the charge of cultural appropriation at the restaurant, and so it has really forced us to sort of think about what our motives are and what we're doing. Um, It's a real thing, like, cultural appropriation is for real, and cultures can get marginalized, and taken advantage of in a, in a myriad of ways, economically, politically, etc. cetera. Um, and that can happen through culture. So it, it's, it's a for real subject. I think for us, what it comes down to is respect and honor. Um, we, you know, I've trained in Chinese kitchens. I've traveled extensively throughout China. I think, you know, I'm not just interested in Chinese food. I'm interested in Chinese culture, Um, and you know how that fits into the greater discussion of things. So I think if you, you know what, I think whatever you do, whatever you, whatever creative path you follow, if you follow with it, it with integrity, you're somewhat insulated. I still think we have to think about these issues and be conscious of the larger conversation. But I think for us, it's about really trying to do stuff with integrity.
3: Yeah, you've talked a lot about following to a T, really, Chinese philosophy and techniques in the kitchen. And the only thing that might not be Chinese are the ingredients, because we're obviously not in China. So we've talked about the importance of this and what you're mentioning of respecting different cultures, understanding philosophies of different cultures, uh, especially with Okonomi's head chef who came on our show as well. So what do you think about what, how, what is your philosophy in the kitchen or what is the Chinese philosophy behind what you do? Well,
5: I've always been, what I was first drawn to and still am drawn to on a daily basis is the technique. And that's always been my focus as a chef, whether I was cooking, you know, American, contemporary American food, um, doing things, making pasta from scratch, um, taking water and flour and eggs and olive oil and then, you know, 20 minutes later, you have pasta. To me, that's what excites me about being in the kitchen is technique and making something out of nothing. And what doubly excites me about Chinese food is the wok and the cooking techniques surrounding surrounding Chinese food. For a Western-trained chef, cooking Chinese food is like learning a different language. None of the equipment in the kitchen is the same. It's completely different. And it takes – we have – you know, Western trained chefs who come on board in our kitchen all the time and they can juggle 12 saute pans and a wok will put them under in 30 seconds. It's a completely different animal.
3: Why is that?
5: Because it's 120,000 BTUs of fire. So everything cooks super fast. It's super hot. It's all in the mise en place. Um, And yeah, so that's where we, uh, you know, like I don't like to use words like traditional and faithful that, but that if, that's one area where we don't diverge. We use cooking equipment that you would find in any restaurant in China.
4: Okay. and the relationship <clears throat> between uh, the cook and the walk it's really almost as if it was one entity it's a it's an incredibly graceful and agile way of cooking but you know the extension of your arm onto the walk and the and the movement of of the food and the sauces and the fire, it all interrelates together, and it's all equally important. Um, you know, each step becomes, it. The, you know, you, you're almost at one with the walk.
3: Okay. What's and, well, go ahead?
5: No, and it's really hard to learn. I mean, it, the it, you know, if you if you've been doing it forever, it's something that comes very naturally. But if you haven't, it's something. It's like, it's like learning mandarin or something like it's i've tried to do that and it's very very difficult and it's just a whole different it's a whole different language
3: when chefs are coming into the kitchen and they haven't been cooking wok walk, with walks for their whole lives what skills are really needed when do you know a chef's gonna make it or break it
5: well they have first of all they have to learn so everything cooks in like a minute um which is a, when you when you really try to wrap your head around that you realize that for each dish, you have to know it internally. You can't just be like, oh, okay, now I got to add some garlic and then think about it for a second and like, oh, yeah, now I need to add the ginger and scallion. You have to, It has to be like boom, 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 boom. Uh, so that's the first thing. The first thing is you have to know the dishes inside and out. So we never put anybody on a walk when they first come in the kitchen. They do what's called building the dishes. So the guy, one guy is on the walk, or one. You know, so far, it's only guys, but one guy's on the walk, and then the other guy will give him all of the vegetables for that particular dish, give him the proteins for that particular dish, have the plate set up behind him so that when he's done with the wok, he can set it right down on the plate and get back to the wok. And so that way the cooks learn, you know, the ingredients in every single dish as if it was like second nature internalized.
3: Do you guys put an emphasis on teaching the cultural side of Chinese cooking to the chefs that are coming in?
5: It's de facto part of the cuisine because it's a totally different style. There's this thing called like wok chi or wok hei. Um, you know, my my Chinese pronunciation is terrible, so forgive me. But that's the life of the wok, and um, everything is has to be very immediate, and everything has to be very fresh and very hot and very vibrant. And it's a whole different thing. And that's why most of the food is served family style because it's got to come out of the wok and go onto the plate and out to the diner as soon as possible. In Western food, we do appetizers and entrees and, you know, intermezzos or whatever. To do that in a Chinese restaurant would be impossible because we have three woks and we're cooking between 1,500 and 2,000 dishes a night. So, you know, somebody wants... You know, if a, if a diner, if if six diners want their dishes at the same time, it's going to have to sit in the window before it goes out because it's all coming out of one walk. So basically, that's a long winded way of saying there's lots of cultural traditions that come into play just in preparing and serving food uh, in, in a Chinese restaurant if you want to do it in that style, which we very much do. So, yeah, that family style of dining, that kind of interactive experience those are very, you know, culturally um, Chinese and East Asian and Asian ways of thinking about food. And I think those are also super cool and valuable. Like we all talk about food as a social thing and, you know, bringing people together and the aspect of, um, you know, socialization and camaraderie. And I think that the big table with dishes coming down and people sharing really contributes to that cultural ethos.
4: And we also, you know, we're fortunate enough that every night at 445 we sit down with the entire staff, um, our cooks cook family meal that we all, um, you know, we'll, we'll eat, we'll talk about any history of certain dishes. Um, we do have a Chinese purveyor that brings fresh produce every single day, um, a lot of seasonal stuff. So we'll, we'll, we'll discuss, you know, any new ingredients and we'll really all talk about you know what what dishes are new and exciting and and the lore. There's a lot of lore behind um, certain Chinese dishes um, just because the history is so rich and varied. And so, to the best that we can, we'll we'll talk about that. We'll you know we'll we'll have a whole discussion around. You know the menu at hand, which is which is a really positive and unifying thing. Um, you know we feel to do with the staff and with the cooks and
5: right. You were mentioning macchio before we, we went on air, and that's a perfect example of how the larger cultural traditions in China play in, play into the you know everyday food. The history of 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 buddhist vegetarian food is a history of trying to mimic animal proteins so you have things like mock shrimp and you have things like Buddha's beef and you have you know our variation at the restaurant is mock eel which is shiitake mushrooms it's a totally vegan dish cut to look like river eels but if you start explaining to people how that dish came about and the history behind it you're automatically talking about buddhism and you know different cultural traditions throughout china
3: How have those traditions that you've learned about really infiltrated your personal life and the life lessons that go beyond the kitchen?
5: Um, hmm, That's a really good question. I mean, we're just in it all the time. I mean, I feel like, um, you know, we have to travel to China, you know, once a year. We are constantly, you know, going to Chinatown, picking up ingredients you know parlaying with different vendors etc um Just you know us. i feel like it's like you know the, the 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 world of chinese food in new york city is a real like vibrant and alive world that exists almost outside almost outside every other restaurant world that i've ever been in in new york so we're now very much a part of that world
4: and i think there's so many aspects of the chinese culture that we've come to Integrate. I mean, just recently, you know, we've been working with um, a family in Hong Kong, third-generation porcelain makers that are now um, helping us design a new line of porcelain for the restaurants. And just as you research the history behind porcelain patterns and colors, and you know, art the the artisans that still do this work, you can't help but to be affected. You know, really in a very soulful way. I mean, it's it's just um, completely. Inspiring, but then when you look at the long history—I um, mean, thousands of years—that that you know this this has all been in the works. It's it's just inspiring on a daily basis.
3: When you're working with people in China, what do they think about a white dude who has a Chinese restaurant in Brooklyn?
5: Well, we get we get several different reactions. One of the reactions we've gotten from native Chinese in the restaurant is they they ask. They, they, this happened before they've yeah. been like, we need to, we need to talk to the chef because they can't believe it because you, if you're using all Chinese ingredients and using all Chinese technique and you're doing it with even a modicum of integrity, and I'm not suggesting our food is, 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 is even everybody's cup of tea, but it's going to taste like something that they're, that's familiar to them. So we've had people, we've had third generation, three generations. We have a third, three generation family, a daughter, Her parents, she was born in America, her parents were born in China, and her grandparents come and visit from China. And they don't speak a lick of English. And the last time they came in, the grandfather, who's from Beijing, said, I want to see the chef because I can't believe this isn't a Chinese chef. So that's one reaction we get. The other one is disbelief you know, which is like, yeah, okay, ha, ha, ha. Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. they, until they yeah. see it, they don't believe it. They're like, you know, it's not it's not for real. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, we've, you know, by and large, I think that, you know, one of our investors is, is a Chinese-American, and when he was tasting one of our dishes called chop your head off soup. He, this was the biggest testimonial to me, better than any review we could have received better than any, you know, any outside criticism. He said he hadn't tasted flavors like that in 30 years since his mother made that soup for him in Hong Kong, which was, that was to me, that was, that was the greatest praise he could have he could have laid on us.
4: I feel that we've been received very positively. I mean, again, we have, you know, we've, we've started to cobble together some relationships that we're very proud of in China from our soy makers to, like I said, the porcelain makers. We have a family that makes um, our steamer baskets. They hand weave all of our, our dim sum baskets and um, by and large, and, and particularly myself as a as a, not just a Western chef, but as a female Western chef, which is even more of a novelty, you know, or 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 an oddity, um, I just feel very mm, uh, grateful of how well we've we are received when we go to China.
5: And the the thing is, what's really gratifying to me as a chef and as a creative person is I never get bored because. You know, I don't pretend to be an expert. I don't pretend to be a master Chinese chef. I don't pretend to be, you know, anything other than what I am, which is somebody who's always learning about this thing. And there's so much to learn and there's so much to draw from again and again and again that I never get bored. So, yeah, it's like every day is, is a learning process.
3: You're listening to Meant to Be Eaten. I'm Andrea Ween, and we will be right back with the crew at Kings County Imperial after this break. And you are listening to Meant to Be Eaten. I'm here with Josh Grinker and Tracy Jane Young, chefs and co-owners of the Williamsburg restaurant, Kings County Imperial. So Josh, there's a bunch of articles with you and where you're teaching Western readers or eaters how to cook with relatively simple, mainly stereotypical Chinese ingredients and methods. So for example, there was something on Vice Munchies about how to make Kung Pao chicken at home. And a few weeks ago, we had Krishnendu Ray on the show uh, from NYU, and he mentioned that in order to really bring two cultures together, it requires both uh, parties to come halfway to each other. So have you found it difficult to push past the stereotypes in an effort to reach or cater to an American audience? And if so, who's driving that? Is it the audience, the media outlet, something else?
5: Hmm, It's a really interesting question. I mean, the thing is, you know, we're... We're just cooking what we love. So we don't, many times because of the regionality throughout China, chefs are trained in a very specific regional cuisine. So a Sichuan chef, for instance, wouldn't cook Cantonese food. A Cantonese chef wouldn't cook, you know, Hunanese food, et cetera, et cetera. They sometimes don't even like those other cuisines. Um We just come at it from a place where we just cook what we love. So we cook everything. We have a great dumpling program. We have, you know, we we love, you know, the strong flavors of Sichuan province. Um, And how this sort of relates back to your question is we also love American Chinese food. So, you know, I love egg rolls. You know, I'd rather have like a homemade, you know, duck sauce, um, which is really apricot preserves and ginger and rice wine vinegar. But it's you know that little stuff that comes in a little packet in your in your takeout thing. But we love we love it all. So one of the things I know that was a little off topic, but I'll bring it around. So we were recently in Chengdu, which is a world heritage food city. Which we didn't even know there was such a distinction as that. But, I need to find all of them and is. go to every single one. Well, <laughs> I think this is like one of the two or three. But it's it is possibly one of the greatest food cities in the world. Um, you know, in my opinion, it is. But. I mean, other people might disagree. Um, one of the things we noticed was that the Sichuan peppercorns, which are ubiquitous throughout Sichuan province, uh, are used in very um, interesting ways as aromatics, as flavorings. Oftentimes, they're infused into oils, which are then used to cook in the f- in the cuisine, and the oils aren't necessarily meant to be eaten. So you'll get a dish in Sichuan province that might be very oily and you lift the protein or the vegetable or whatever you're eating out of the oil and eat it. And you get that intense Sichuan peppercorn flavor and you get all these aromatic flavors from the infused oil. But Americans haven't really learned to eat that way. So they just see an oily plate and they think oh that's you know it's too oily for my for my palate or for my taste. It's really a very important part of the of the Chinese diet and it's not necessarily meant to be you know drunk or eaten like a soup. It's meant more as a flavoring additive. So that's one of the things we realized was and if you throw By the way, if you throw just Sichuan peppercorns in a dish, oftentimes they can be gritty and sandy. So it's a much more sophisticated way of of using the peppercorn is to infuse oils and infuse your food with it and not necessarily hit you over the head with it. And the Chinese have mastered that, and I'm not sure that we have.
3: A few people who've come on the show have declared expensive Chinese food the future of food. So what's your forecast on where we go next? Do you think Americans are ready to move past what we know?
5: I, well, I, don't, I can't speak specifically to Chinese food, but I think it's exactly the opposite. The food trends in this country are going, um, you know, it's like elevated fast food is whatever is, is sort of the future of food. At least that's the direction it's going. And it's one of the things I love about what we're doing, which is that it's not fine dining. Um, it's not pretending to be like white tablecloth this or white tablecloth that. It's, you know, a, an amalgam of what we love and really good home cooked, home style food. And to me, that's what what draws me when I got into this business, I was super excited about, you know, the French laundry and the you know, the four star experiences. And now that stuff really leaves me flat. Like I just want a really soulful, good food experience with good people around me.
3: Why do you think it's evolved in that way? For you?
5: You know, I really don't know why it's evolved that way for me. I think that, you know, as a culture, I think we were sort of, we've, you know, a lot of people who grew up on McDonald's and fast food now are kind of addicted to those flavor profiles, but they want it in more of a, you know, of a setting that's not so fast food. So you have restaurants taking on those flavor profiles and that sort of intense processed food stuff, but putting it in a more... Um, you know, more restaurant, uh, full service setting. But for me, I, I don't know, it's just been an evolution. I mean, uh, the evolution of a lot of chefs, a lot of great chefs is always they start off with really like high minded ideals and ambitions, and then they overcomplicate everything. And then they go back to really simple food. And, you know, the great the great chefs of New York from my childhood, the, the you know the Eric repairs and the daniel's and and those guys, they you know, went through that through that pendulum swing and came back to like really good, fresh, honest, simple food. Um, so for for me, that's that's really what it's about.
3: Maybe this is optimistic of me, but I think this whole fast casual thing could be a good thing for this multicultural discussion that we're having because it allows diners to be able to go in and have a relatively low-cost meal but have a really elevated experience in a way and taste these flavors and give them a try and maybe have an opportunity for education at a restaurant.
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, to me... The more we can experience other cultures in an honest way, the better. And that goes for myself as a diner, the way that goes for myself as someone, you know, continually learning to cook a cuisine. Like I want people, everybody wants that honest experience. I think that's where the cultural appropriation issue gets a little sticky is when it's done with dishonesty um, in a just a, you know, a blatant for-profit way. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's where the issue really comes into play. But I think that, yeah, the more access we have globally to, you know, there is, there's something to be said for cultural appropriation being, uh, you know, a negative thing and something that we need to watch out for. But there's something also about celebrating multiculturalism that shouldn't get lost in the discussion.
3: When you think about the distinction between that, you touched on it a little bit just now, but can you elaborate a bit more on what you see as cultural appropriation and problematic versus multiculturalism and moving things forward?
5: Again, I think it it all harkens back to doing things honestly and respectfully. Um, I think you know there are certain definitely things you shouldn't do, um, which is pander or you know just take things out of context and. Uh, you know, forget about where you came from or where those things came from. I think if you do it honestly and you really learn something and you really make it your life's work, I think it's very difficult to say that you shouldn't, you know, be allowed to create what inspires you.
3: Yeah, so Lee Hull wrote a guide to cultural appropriation on her blog um, called On She Goes, and in it she advocates for making dumplings with your friends at parties as a way to really understand that culture, but against wearing things uh, from a different culture as a fashion statement, you know, Indian headdresses and things of that nature. How do you think we can use food specifically as an instrument for empowerment and education?
5: Um, well, I mean, I you know, I don't know. I don't really I, – I, unfortunately, I don't really think about it that way. I think about it as just kind of – well, there is the educational element. So I think that the more that – People can be exposed to things that they're not used to and be sort of excited by those things. I think that's an entree into culture. I don't think that in and of itself is enough. So in other words, I don't think it's enough to say, oh, well, you know, I love burritos. Therefore, like, you know, I don't ever need to go to Mexico. I think that it's a a process in learning about a culture and learning about, you know, the differences and similarities that we all have. Exploring food is a part of that continuum.
4: And food can be so unifying. And I think there's so many divisive forces um, at work out there in the world right now that food is a, is a vessel um, to find common ground. And, you know, I think we all, regardless of, you know, where we grew up or what language we speak, if you sit down at a table with a group of people, and you break bread together, that is a really positive, powerful experience, and I think that it, um, it, it helps people find common ground.
3: I think there's something to be said, too, for the fact of you guys working with people in China. You mentioned the porcelain makers, and using their expertise and their years and the evolution of everything that they've come through and not just using someone who's also white in the U.S., to create those things or to, to pull inspiration?
4: We hope so. It's hugely important to us to feel like we um, have a good balance there. And whenever possible, you know, we use, um, we use Chinese fabricators for our wok stoves. I mean, we, 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 we really very much feel that that's an important relationship um, to maintain for the restaurant and, and for our lives.
3: Has that gotten easier as you've gotten more entrenched in the restaurant and a little bit more comfortable to be able to maybe pull those people up and help in a different way?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I think it's, it, it's become easier and I think it's become more common. And I think that, you know, you said before, how are we received in China? It depends if you go to rural China and you try to, you know, t- we've cooked in rural China before. And the only way we really got entree into those kitchens was when we actually picked up a cleaver and showed the person that we could we didn't we weren't going to you know slice our hand off because they couldn't believe it at first and now you know you, they see you know how to use a cleaver and they see you know how to you have some knife skills and there's a certain respect that goes along with that and it's the same in New York with purveyors and with you know you know when you're in the chinese food world you're in that world and you're dealing with, you know, a huge infrastructure. You mentioned before that there's like three times more Chinese fast food restaurants than there are McDonald's. Like this has been going on for a long time. Like we did not invent this stuff. The Chinese have been doing restaurants really, really well for like 200 years Mm -hmm. in this country. So there's a network and, uh, you know, uh, of people out there that are, you know, when I worked, I worked at a Chinese restaurant in Northern New England and we had a truck coming up the Eastern seaboard from New York dropping off to Chinese restaurants all up and down the eastern seaboard. And this was in 1996. So I think the one thing that has changed is that now that you have, you know, Japanese people cooking Chinese food and, you know, white people cooking Japanese food and everybody cooking everybody else's food, you're not looked at, it's not so strange. It's not so strange when we go to a Chinese purveyor and say, you know, we want to order this, that, and the other thing. They're not like, oh, my God, like, what are you going to do with that? It's, it's a little more normal.
3: What's next for you guys, and what's next for Chinese food in America?
4: Well, we have some exciting things. We have um, an expansion happening in Brooklyn uh, we have a we our our dumpling makers who come in at eight o'clock every morning and hand roll dumplings are about to get a big upgrade. We're expanding next door. We're going to have a, a little market where we're going to sell um, some of our products, some of our sauces and our and our and our uh, dumplings and noodles. We have um, a new kitchen going in. So there's there's uh, some tentacles out in Brooklyn, and then we're 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 going to try our hand over Manhattan. We signed a lease on a small space that will be largely. Um, the the same as King's Co in in Brooklyn but um yeah we we've we've kind of reached the limit of <clears throat> our capacity where we are and so we're we're going to yeah stretch out a little bit and see how we do.
5: Yeah, and I think regarding the question of where is Chinese food go next? I mean, Chinese food is kind of hot right now. And, you know, Asian food in general, Southeast Asian food like New Yorkers, this is a very exciting time for a chef because New Yorkers and I think many cities throughout the United States are open to Asian flavors in a way that they've never been open to them before. Uh, Everybody want you know it it responds really well to the vibrancy and excitement of spice and you know different things like that. But it's hard for me to see this as a trend because I know the history of it. So yeah, it's like I said, like Chinese restaurants have been you know um, among Americans' favorite food. For like 200 years, favorite ethnic foods. So I think it's, you know, it's been here for a long time. It's gone through different incarnations, but I don't think it's going away.
3: Josh and Tracy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. And thanks to all of you for listening. This is Meant to Be Eaten. And don't forget to grab your tickets to our Heritage Radio Network holiday party and tasting at the Palm House here in Brooklyn where you can meet all your favorite hosts and sample food from over a dozen chefs and sip on some specialty cocktails. It's on December 4th, and a VIP ticket will get you early access, which includes champagne and oysters. Find all the details at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Andrea Ween. You can follow me at Dre Eats on Instagram. Have a great Thanksgiving, and we will catch you next time.